Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 25th, 2019, and today's episode is going to be a little bit different. My guest is David Deppner, who is the CEO of Cyberware. That's Cyberware starting with the letters P-S-Y, not the uh, Cyberware starting with C-Y. David Deppner of Cyberware. David, welcome to EconTalk. Uh, thanks, Ross. Glad to be here. Now, I met David at the recent EconTalk uh, get-together we did in uh, San Francisco at Stripe headquarters. It was an amazing event. It was incredibly touching to me to have between 150 and 200 people turn out to, say, to hang out, say hello, meet each other. And besides socializing that we did, I gave a brief talk on what I've been thinking about that's grown out of recent EconTalk episodes. In particular, I spoke on our growing, uh, my growing interest in the idea that as human beings, we need to know things. Uh, I grew out of the episode with Robert Burton on his book, On Being Certain. And I've been thinking about how comforting it is to know something, not just as part of, say, confirmation bias, but just our need to know something, our desire to put things in the box called, I don't have to think about that anymore, because I know it's true. And what are the implications for that on how we make decisions and the tendency we all have to be overconfident? And, of course, there's a theme on this program. I talk about it a lot that this this overconfidence is a great danger, uh, that we have this natural tendency to cherry pick facts uh, that confirm our views, our ideology, our religion, our politics, and that that's really a bad thing. And we we stress in, on this program just a lot the importance of humility, the value of being humble intellectually, and the importance of, of conceding that there are many things we don't know uh, the answer to. And you know, I've said many times, uh, learn to enjoy saying, I don't know. So that's been a theme for a while. And um, I, I will say that you careful listeners will note, I've, I've occasionally had some unease about that level of, of humility, and we'll get to that later. But it generally, I think, would be the case that on this program, uh, humility is a virtue. So at the end of this talk about certainty and the dangers of being certain and the importance of being aware that we have an urge for certainty and the importance of humility, I took questions. And at the very end, I took a question from David, our guest today. And we were almost out of time. He had to ask it kind of quickly, and I gave a quick answer. And it turns out it was a, a deep and important question. I didn't appreciate it at, at the time. And uh, David noticed I didn't, and he followed up with an email, a fairly lengthy email. And I realized two things. I hadn't fully understand his, didn't fully understand his question, and I realized he was asking me something that was deeply uh, jarring and disturbing uh, to, to my worldview. So I thought it would be interesting – to have David as guest uh, talk about the issues that he raised and see if he and I, in talking about them, uh, could um, learn something. So, David, I want to start uh, with your email, and um, uh, you're going to read a version of it. Uh, you're, you're free to annotate it as, as you need to uh, uh, as you read it rather than just reading it literally, but um, go ahead. All right. Thank you, Russ. So I've been a long-time listener of EconTalk. I found you in the first two to three years. 
and I went back to the beginning and listened to every episode. Uh, You've talked before about how listeners feel they know you, but you don't know them, and that's so true. It's probably a weird place for you to be. It's a bit weird from this side as well. Like, you feel like we could just sit down and start talking like old friends, but you don't know me. I guess we're getting to know each other today, huh? Yeah, that's right. But you did say last week at Stripe that you like to hear from people, so I'm going to take that at face value, say a few things, and ask a question that I wanted to go into during your Q&A. First of all, thank you for putting in this work over the past decade and then some. The discussions you've had with people have truly enriched my life, and I think they've helped polish off some of my rough edges as well. You've talked about how Econ Talk has changed you over the years. It's changed a lot of us. I'm less certain than I used to be about a lot of things, more humble, not always so great at that bit. I I question a lot more, and I I question a lot more of my own sacred cows. Listening to you engage in meaningful conversations around topics of what we know, what we can know, how to interpret data, it's been good. I was the last person at Stripe to ask a question. It was rapid fire. I tried to boil it down to a quick snippet about how people look up to those in authority wanting them to know all the answers, what we should do about it. You answered the question quickly, talking about how we simply shouldn't ask the questions, and elaborated on that. We only had a few seconds. But the question I was trying to ask was just slightly different. I wanted to follow up and try to ask it again. You've talked a lot about how you're grappling with people's need for certainty, and the nuance that I'm trying to grapple with is people's need for those they look up to to have certainty. When you're the person everyone thinks should know the answers. Maybe a brief example will help. I've been in leadership positions my whole life. It's not something I've really sought after. It just kind of happened. I'm pretty shy and introverted, but I step up and I like to challenge myself to do things that are hard. I learned so much from that. I started my first business when I was a teenager in the 90s. I started it on accident. (laughs) Uh, I've spent most of my life self-employed, but I've worked for others here and there. Because I started a business so young and had to hire people to grow it, I was thrust into this world of leadership. There's so much pop culture business BS around leadership, but the thing is, when you're the the one calling the shots, hiring and firing, teaching and mentoring, setting up processes, figuring out how to build an organization, people interact with you in a certain way. And early on, I had to grapple with that. People want you to know the answers when they look up to you as some kind of leader or person in authority. One of my early employees shocked me one day, a couple of decades ago. She was really concerned about the future. She was anxious, maybe conflicted about some things in her personal life. She really wanted to know the direction of the company, what was happening, how was it going to go in the next few months, what was going to happen. She had this intense desire for certainty about her work future, probably because of things that were really uncertain about her personal life. She needed that stability and foundation. We talked around a lot of things going on, but I didn't tell her how it was going to go. I told her what the issues were. I didn't tell her how it would turn out. I told her about the risks and possible rewards and what we were aiming for. I explained the bets we were making. I see it as being honest and humble, confident that we navigate things just fine and keep working it all out and making the future even better, but also uncertain about the exact form it would take. Um, But she gave me some feedback on that. That's not the answer she wanted to hear. She brought up the movie Apollo 13. Remember the guy in Mission Control? A crisis occurs, and and Gene Kranz is out in front of everyone telling them what they're going to do, how it's going to go, and the iconic quote from the movie, failure is not an option. They're going to bring those guys home. It will happen. They will succeed. And that was her example to me of what she felt was wrong with me as a leader in that context. That was her example of what she thought I should be. Uh, I I don't think she wanted intellectual honesty, 
she didn't want humility. She wanted to be inspired by a vision of future certainty. She wanted to be lied to. It surprised me that somebody would even think that way and need me to fill that role for them. That example has stayed with me over the years. I've seen example after example of that. In 2008, I finished my master's degree. I did some part-time teaching at California State University, Sacramento, the business department. In that teaching role, there were countless times when students just wanted answers from me, certainty. I'd talk around some models and theories around how the world uh, was changing, try to get them to grapple with some issues. I thought I was doing a good job with the Socratic method, trying to ask questions to lead them to think about things uh, in different ways. For some students, that's fascinating, and they learn how to think. For others, it's incredibly unsettling that their professor doesn't know all the answers. I thought you might have some thoughts on that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my sister-in-law is a surgeon, and you know how people want to talk to their surgeon about outcomes, about probability of success. Doctors are not good at math. She can reassure people and act confident, but that's a lie sometimes. Maybe it's what people want, though, uh, but I still don't see it as honest. You've had some episodes lately exploring the placebo effect. So what if it's not honest? Perhaps a little bit of a lie is actually good for people, and we can even prove that in a randomized control trial. I don't know. On the other hand, four years ago, a heart surgeon told my father that he needed surgery and the outcomes would be very good. There was nothing to worry about. A few days later, my father was dead. Perhaps a solid randomized control trial of uh, surgeon certainty would show better outcomes on average if uh, surgeons conveyed certainty and patients believed them. Again, I don't know if I'd put much faith in such a result. There are too many variables. Did your father have that surgery or not have it? He had the surgery. Yeah, and it didn't work. Uh, yeah, I remember, I remember a discussion about uh, uh, several times in a year when uh, cardiac surgeons go off to conferences, and during those time periods, there are different outcomes from uh, heart attacks. And that was on my mind during that whole episode. It was fascinating. Yeah. So when you're dealing with lives, there's a tremendous downside for those who uh, end up on the wrong side of the average. Taleb has had a lot to say about things like this, but surgeons just don't have the same kind of skin in the game that their patients do. The Democratic debates recently highlighted some of this for me about politicians once more. So many people just think their favorite candidate has it all figured out, and that's the answer to everything. The candidates convey certainty, and their supporters eat it up. And I don't even have to wonder about what would happen if a candidate told the truth about not knowing everything. This is a perfect picture of what happens to humans in society. We seem to crave certainty from our leaders so much that we'll choose from a field of bad choices who all lie to us and convey a faux expertise, but a better leader who actually didn't know everything, who grappled with human limits to understanding and admitted those limits, that person couldn't get elected. That person wouldn't even make it to the early rounds of debates. What I've been personally grappling with is some of these issues that you've been exploring about around certainty but from the manager, professor, surgeon, politician side of things. The world would be better if people in positions of leadership could be more humble. What are those people to do when they find themselves in situations where other people desperately need them to convey a certainty that they can't convey with integrity? I've followed a particular path when people, where people would fault me for being too honest about what I don't know sometimes but I still have strong opinions and I'm very willing to make decisions in situations of uncertainty and deal with the consequences. Other people in the same uh, position, particularly in medicine, I think, blatantly lie about how things are going to turn out. Maybe that's even a more ethical choice if the effect of that on a patient is to support recovery and greater health. But is it? 
As a professor, you can truly argue that portraying intellectual humility to your students is helping them to develop their critical reasoning skills, learn the limits of their knowledge. But that's not the social role of a surgeon. Before surgery is not the time and place to confront the families of patients with abstract ideas about the limits of our knowledge. And perhaps we can wish that our politicians were more realistic in their pronouncements. But isn't that just a pointless sentiment if we know that those uh, who require social support to be chosen as leaders face no chance of selection if they're humble about what they know and what they can't know? On either side, what would happen to a candidate who just admitted that the problem of school shootings was a desperately difficult one that we just might not have a solution to? In all of those situations, there's still this dynamic of how most people look up to people who are, quote, leaders and demand certainty or they ditch them. It's difficult to stay in a social role that other people look up to if you're intellectually honest. Perhaps a professor can with tenure, but what about someone just starting down that path? Politicians certainly can't. Business leaders who don't put on their inspiring leader hat have less success because some employees lose faith if they're not constantly inspired. Turnover is higher. Surgeons who tell the truth might have poorer outcomes as well, and it seems like there's some evidence to suggest that. The young woman who wanted me to be more like Jean Kranz at NASA left her job later to go on to work for a larger bureaucracy, bureaucracy with presumably a manager that had more answers. Um, a couple of years later, that company basically went bust and got acquired by a competitor. Um, but was her life better for the next year or two with, with more certainty? So where's my question in all of this? I guess it's just, I'm curious about your thoughts on the ethical side of how people in positions of leadership should handle the burden placed on them by everyone else that says they should have certainty. You're usually talking about these issues from the perspective of everyone else in their ac- interactions with those in positions of authority. What about from the perspective of the manager, the surgeon, the professor, the politician, and so on? I'd like to hear more about your thoughts on that. I know I've rambled long here, and I certainly don't expect any lengthy reply. I'd simply be happy if you read this and continued to explore these ideas in your future work. That's answer enough. I'll be listening. And and now you're listening uh, in a way you didn't anticipate. So, again, I incredibly uh, appreciate the question, which I've been thinking about. It's tempting to say nonstop, but that would be dishonest. But I've been thinking about it a lot since, since I got it about a week ago. And I'm going to sharpen it a little bit with another essay that I stumbled on after uh, receiving your um, email. Uh, it, it, it was from a, an essay uh, by another CEO who was a big fan of Brene Brown. And Brene Brown has carved out a, quite a niche for herself advocating for vulnerability. And she has a fabulous uh, TED Talk. It's the kind of TED Talk that if you told me, Ten years ago, I'd listened to it. I'd have laughed at you. It's a, I would have mocked you mercilessly for even suggesting it. But it struck a chord with me when I watched it, maybe because I'm older, maybe because it's such a good talk. She's a really superb, superb presenter. Um, and in that vulnerability talk, she gives the – she makes a case for the power of vulnerability and how much of her life – and I would say it's true of myself as well – vulnerability is a weakness. Why would I – that's a horrible thing. Vulnerability, that that's – that's a mistake. And she sells the idea, and she sells it quite well. So this CEO, uh, Craig Litster, uh, uh, went and uh, tried to apply that, and uh, he found that vulnerability in the CEO is a really horrible um, strategy. Your reports don't want vulnerability. Uh, he talks about how 
He tried to step back and be less of a dictator. I think the issue is, is, is even, again, sharper than that. It's they don't want to hear you express your deepest emotions. They don't want to hear you. Your spouse does. Your friends do. Your intimates do. But your reports are not your employees are not your intimates, although they sometimes feel like they are. And they um, they don't want to hear your your fears. They don't want to hear your weaknesses. They don't want to hear your emotional challenges. And I've I've known of organizations where leaders have done that, and people walk away. They don't say oh, that was so beautiful. They walk away saying they're bewildered, like a little bit like your employee, like the story you told the woman who anxious about the future. She didn't want to hear about. She, I got a lot of doubts. Uh, I don't know how it's going to turn out. We'll do the best we can. She wants to hear. She wants reassurance. Okay, so that I think to take your challenge directly, uh, it's easy for a host of a podcast to be humble. Uh, it does keep my ratings down, by the way, David. I think I, I think I'd have more ratings if I were angrier, louder, and and more certain, maybe, but. But uh, in general, I think it's relatively cost-free for a podcast host to be, uh, or a professor, uh, or an academic, or a scholar, or a thinker to be um, thinking. Yeah, I don't know. How, I don't know. And it, I, your point is that saying I don't know is great for that person, but for somebody in a leadership position, not only is it uh, a deal killer. You're not only are you going to struggle to become the CEO, to be the head of mission control, to get elected as president, to be a successful surgeon, um, it's not what is consistent with doing your job well. Your job in those settings is to exude confidence, certainty, vision, uh, a path to that to that vision. Is that is that a good summary of what you're of what you're asking? I think that's that's a very insightful summary. Except, um, I, I will. All, I mean, there's nuance there. There's definitely a lot of nuance. Perhaps in my small organization, that's my business, I can make a decision to be a certain way. Um, but if I was the CEO of Pepsi, who'd been rising through the ranks yeah. my entire life, I, I've got a real obligation to the organization to do not what is maybe how I'm maybe not be what I'd normally be, but to to maximize shareholder value, to keep employee turnover low, to make sure we're delivering on next quarter, quarter's results. And, and I might have to subvert what I'd really like to do there about being intellectually honest uh, in, in, in the name of, yeah, um, putting on that confident leader hat, inspiring the troops and, and trying to move the organization forward. So one answer I could give, and it's not the answer I like, but it is an answer is, uh, and it, it came to me uh, when I was interviewing Andrew Roberts, uh, an episode that hasn't been released yet. So David, you have not heard it, but um, since receiving your email, I interviewed Andrew Roberts about Churchill. And of course, Churchill's incredibly overconfident. And I talked to him a little bit about it, partly influenced by your, your email and thinking about these issues. And one view, which is not my view, but I think it's worth considering is that to rise to that level, to be a Churchill, to be a CEO of a Fortune 50 or 500 company, uh, requires a level of arrogance that really isn't maybe not so healthy. Uh, it requires a level of overconfidence and self-assurance. You know, I, I made the point in the, in the Andrew Roberts interview that 
You know, it's easy to say ex post that Churchill was a, a visionary, a genius. Um, he saw the dangers from Hitler. Well, history turned out that way. There were many times in his career when he could have turned out to be a crank, a crazy, bellicose, paranoid, uh, one-issue guy who um, was a, a, a strange human being for, the, for those reasons, as well as for that overconfidence. Uh, you know, Andrew Roberts tells the joke that Churchill wasn't much of a religious person. He did believe in the Almighty, although he thought that the Almighty's main job was to keep Winston Churchill safe <laughs> and to take care of him. And, and I think leaders have that level of, of arrogance to give it a negative name, self-confidence to give it a positive name, self-esteem, a semi-positive spin. Uh, and one view says that a thoughtful, honest person who's worried about their soul I don't mean that in the religious sense, but in the sort of secular spiritual sense of one's well-being and emotional health, uh, shouldn't strive for that, shouldn't aspire and to those to those tasks. And I have a number of friends who would say that the people who become successful politicians are psychopaths. And that's the word they use, by the way. They're in desperate need of adulation. They're in desperate need of power. Uh, we've talked on the program before about Robert Caro's biography of LBJ. It's the portrait of, in the first part of the book. It's a portrait of a psychopath, a, a very uh, unhealthy individual dealing with damaged, a damaged psyche from his youth who craves power and is, will do anything to get it and will lie. And, and not just lie in the way we think of politicians lying, but, but it's also probably to see himself as somebody he really wasn't, uh, as, as dauntless, as, as, uh, impossibly, uh, who's always going to succeed, and those emotions, which which really are incredibly important in a in a leader of a nation or the leader of an organization at the size you're talking about, uh, that's what it demands. And I think one way to spin your question and your answer you just gave is to say, well, yeah, maybe that's not a really healthy thing. Um, what are your thoughts on that? That's not my answer. I have a different answer coming up, but, but I, want to hear, I want to hear your response to that. So Churchill's definitely an interesting case. Um, in a different time, in a different place, with a different set of circumstances, we wouldn't know who he was. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of connecting the dots that we do when we look back on history and we think that outcomes turned out a particular way because of particular people. And I'm, I'm not sure I buy into that very much. Churchill, Churchill's interesting to me. I've read some books on him over my life. I've watched some movies and some documentaries. Um, but yeah, would he, would he have been anyone if he, you know, just the right things hadn't happened, the vote had been slightly different, a couple percentage of people did something slightly different because of what happened last week? Uh, it, it's not certain at all. If Hitler had lost his nerve after, say, is uh, the partition of Czechoslovakia, and then we'd say, boy, that Chamberlain, he understood how important it was to not respond so violently right away and to give him a chance to, to pull back. I think, again, if we're being intellectually honest, uh, perhaps no real kind of leadership is truly appropriate in every situation. Right. And that's something that I, I think is important. When it comes to the, the whole idea of the notion of, uh, say, a hubris or an arrogance on the part of leaders who rise to top positions, 
I do kind of wonder about the selective pressures that let certain people rise and keep other people down. And that's part of the subtext of what I was saying about those Democratic candidates at the debates. I found myself watching that without getting into politics here. Just, I found myself watching the program and wondering which ones truly believe what they're saying and whether some of them actually just are, are giving the confidence they need to give to get elected, but they would actually maybe be more humble about problem solving once they were elected. But it's hard to tell. And not clear which is worse. You want somebody who is actually that self-confident or and, and there's a placebo effect in there, right? There's a there's a there's a feeling you have that leaders who are overconfident are going to overcome obstacles that less competent leaders are going to just give up and struggle. So it's better to have somebody who's actually a uh, uh, a psychopathic, uh, overly confident uh, narcissist, or do you want somebody who pretends to be one so that they can get elected? <laughs> it's a, they're both horrible. <laughs> Yeah, that goes back to the question of whether we really want to depend a great deal on the individual and the role, and instead it's more about the institution surrounding that role and, and all of the other checks and balances involved. I, I do get a little nervous about psychopaths with too, much, with too much power. Yeah, for sure. So you raised uh, three different areas, uh, business, medicine, and politics. And my first serious answer, uh, besides that, First point that, you know, maybe this is not something one should aspire to. Uh, I, I think we're probably glad there are some people who aspire to leadership, right? So we wouldn't want to say that no one should be a leader. That would, that's not a good answer. Yeah. So one of the things I pointed out at the beginning of that email is I never aspired to leadership positions. I started a business on accident. I didn't really even intend to. Just right place, right time. Started a little computer bulletin board just before the Internet boom. And then all of a sudden, random strangers are calling me up at home wanting Internet access because there's no Internet access in that part of Northern California in 1994. And so I found myself hiring employees. It was not my intent. And that just started a life off of being in various leadership positions. But, yeah, it's and not everybody who finds themselves thrust into various roles um, seeks them out. Not everybody has the same personalities. There's, there's so many different styles of being and, and ways of thinking and and I think we, we often just see the leaders at the very large organizations or in politics and the ones that steal the limelight. And there's a real selection bias there. The average leader is not like that, I think. Um, there are a lot of leaders in a lot of companies throughout this country that you've never heard of them. Nobody but the employees of that company will. And they're great people. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and they're respected and, and uh, uh, appreciated by their employees. And, but they don't get movies made about them. So we don't know them. They don't get profiled in in magazines and, and so on. Um, but the point I was going to make is that you know, we could imagine there are very different uh, ways to think about leadership and the challenges of honesty and humility in, in business versus medicine versus politics. And I, so I'm just going to say that up front because I don't, as you very thoughtfully pointed out a minute ago, one of the lessons of all of this is that you know, the style of leadership that works is going to depend on the time. It's going to depend on the organization. It depends on the, the leadership, the leaders alongside the main leader, the other executives. And uh, I think it's incredibly important in any kind of relationship, not just leadership, to be aware that the people in the room you're interacting with are not the same as you. What would be good for you, what you need to hear 
from a leader is not necessarily what other people in the room need to hear. Um, uh, I, I think that's so un, unnatural for most of us to, to remember that. We tend to give the answers that we think would comfort us without thinking sometimes that that person we're interacting with is not like us, in fact, needs the opposite. So I want from the surgeon, I really love it when a surgeon says, I don't know. And I recently dealt with some interesting, I may come back to this later, but I had to make a decision about surgery in a, for, in a family situation and asked the surgeon the odds of certain things happening, con, pro and con. And a number of times the surgeon said, I don't know. We don't have that. We don't have good information about that. And of course, for me, that was like, wow, this is fantastic. I love an honest surgeon. But other people would go, like, like you're talking about your, uh, is it your sister or your sister-in-law? Sister-in-law. Sister-in-law was a surgeon. would go like, Oh, I got to find a different surgeon. I don't want one who doesn't know. I want one who does know and who lies about it. But I'll just pretend it's not a lie. <laughs> um, at any rate, I, I, I so I want to start with that. That that there are different settings, uh, and I don't. I, the one I want to focus on is is uh, is not at the national level, where I think um, most of us listening, most of you out there listening, are not going to be confronted with the challenge of running for president and trying to decide how honest to be. But all of us have different roles that have a leadership component in day to day life. Besides CEOs, CEOs do for sure. But so do managers of in different levels of the business, but certainly family members. As a dad um, and as a husband and as a son of aging parents, I'm constantly dealing with the issues that you've raised, which is how honest should I be? And I have some members in those circles who don't like it that I'm always saying, you know, I'm not so sure we know the answer to that. They don't want to hear that, some of my friends and family members, they find that level of honesty uh, uncomfortable. And so you have to learn. So one answer, of course, is that when you're in a situation of uncertainty, which is most of life, uh, how much humility you have inside you and how much you voice are two different things. There's a difference between dishonest and nuance. There's a difference between dishonest and I don't have to reveal every single uncertainty I have about this process because people are sick of hearing about that in my family sometimes. And also because it's just not relevant. It's not what that person wants to hear. It's not dishonest to ignore it. Uh, and if pressed, maybe I would tell more honestly how I felt about it. But I think the first point to make is that all of us have to deal with this and not just CEOs. And I want our conversation going forward to deal with those kind of settings where um, uh, grappling with this, this issue that sometimes people crave overconfidence. And how should a person as a leader, as a husband, as a son, as a father responding to a decision that has to be made, how do we deal with that? The things you bring up about family life, I think, are actually incredibly important here. I mean, think about how we raise children. We start them out, and they're these chaotic little creatures, uh, uncivilized, and we, we give them a lot of structure. Uh, and, and as they move through getting older, they, they look up to the parents, and the parents have all the answers. And that's that sort of initial imprint of somebody who has the answer, has the certainty. They, they're, you know, their word is law. And the, the transition to adulthood for a lot of people going through those teenage years, I think is incredibly challenging, you know, when they're, they're grappling with those issues of their parents not knowing everything. 
when they're grappling with those issues of, wow, up until this point, I've known what to do next. I've known the next step to take. Um, I go from third grade into fourth grade and then fifth grade and every step of the way, I know what's going to happen next year. Um, and children are sheltered from a lot of the uncertainties of life. And we lie to them uh, constantly in, in ways that we justify usually as being for their own good, but often is because it makes us uncomfortable or we don't know what to say. Uh, we'll put up a link to an essay from Paul Graham. Uh, Paul created the Y Combinator, the incubator for startups. That's um, And he, he's written a bunch of essays, been on EconTalk. Um, his essay on how we lie to children is deeply disturbing and thought-provoking and true, I think. that. And if, if you're listening out there as a parent, you say, well, what do you mean I don't lie to my kids? And the answer is yes, you do all the time. <laughs> uh, and, and most of the time, it's it's for the best. And, and it's not literally telling, uh, misleading them. It's giving them a stru- the structure of certainty that we're talking about today that is crucial to, to go forward in life, to be able to thrive and to have – uh, comfort with how complicated the world is. And at certain ages and certain settings, that's the right thing to do. So taking it maybe just a little bit beyond children, I wonder about that, that as, a, as a, just a fundamental human need. So here we are talking about not being certain all the time, and that's a virtue. And yet at the same time, um, it seems like we all have some anxieties. We all have some level of neuroticism. We all have things that we worry about. And that can be debilitating for some people. And we're all somewhere on a spectrum of not caring that much, which might be a little psychopathic, all the way over to caring a lot about everything. Obsessed. Yeah. Yeah. And having certainty about some things, maybe particularly things that don't actually matter, that's a great coping mechanism to maybe not just be paralyzed by the anxieties that come up in life. Well, I'm writing an essay on this might turn into a book on on these questions of our need for certainty, our desire to know things. And one of the examples, one of the themes of this opening part is that enormous part of our life is total certainty about a huge amount of stuff that if we didn't have, we'd be debilitated, uh, as you say. So the example I give is, you know, I wake up in the morning, who's sleeping next to me? Well, it appears to be my wife, but am I sure? <laughs> the answer is, yes, I am. I don't think about it for a second. I don't say, well, she's got the same hair color as my wife. It looks a lot like her. I better look more closely. It's my wife. I go to take my shower. I don't say, I wonder if in the middle of the night somebody switched the hot and the cold water. I should be open to that possibility, right? I just, so much of our life like that is just on autopilot. And it has to be because otherwise we would be paralyzed. And I think... There is this trade-off between uncertainty or humility and certainty and, and overconfidence uh, that we have to face. That, that it's inevitable. So no matter how long I talk about or how much I ramble or, or plead for the importance of humility, there are numerous parts of my life there's no humility. I'm totally certain, and, I, and, and it has to be that way. And it has to be that way with my family uh in in many of the things that i tell them when they say what are we going to do about x y or z or where are we going or and when they were younger it was even worse <laughs> i was even as you say i was even more certain you know the issues you've sort of brought up about um about lying versus telling the truth my parents brought me up to never lie and that's just such an ingrained thing i don't want to lie i don't want to lie and then you know well the actual reality is we all lie all the time and it's a, it's a kind of interesting thing that we have such a, 
we have such a social value on on integrity and honesty in that sense, and yet the little white lies are everywhere. You have to shorthand things. You have to leave out parts of a story. You you can't function with giving full details of everything. You have to give a, a child a simple explanation that's close enough for their understanding at the age they are. Yeah, we've talked to numerous times on the program about how are you? How are you? Hey, how are you? Fine. That's a lie most of the time, a lot of the time, right? But, you know, for this person, I don't need to, they're not interested. I don't, I'm just going to say fine. Uh, but, of course, you know, that's what I would call a white lie. I think the lie that we, that we and I, I want to just add that, that parents who push never lie, which I probably did for my kids also, um, it, it, it's a corrective to the natural impulse to lie, <laughs> right? The, 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 um, it, it's so easy to lie, and it's so comforting to lie, and it is often so uh, in your self-interest to lie that we as parents know that those kind of people have many challenges in life, the, the dishonest people and the liars, and so... Uh, a lot of civilizing is about pushing back against that natural self-interest. Um, deception is a common uh, seductive urge. And um, as parents and as religious traditions in popular culture, we often uh, go way in the other direction. Don't lie ever. There's no, it's never justified, you know, um, there are many, we know, though, there are many situations where as we get older, we realize not only is it okay to lie, it's imperative to lie. Um, you know, I think the interesting challenge, I don't want to go into this in detail, but I just want to put it on the table because I think it's relevant to what you raised about medicine. I, I said we're going to focus on the leadership stuff and not go to politics, and I don't think we have a lot to say about medicine. But one of the issues that comes up you know, is should you tell a patient that they're at risk of death or that death is imminent? And for much of human history, well, it's a short window when we actually understood when people were probably going to die. Uh, that took a long time to understand enough medicine. But for a long time, once we got to that point, the answer was you don't tell them. You lie to them. How are you, how are you doing? Oh, you're, you look great. You're going to do fine. Uh, you're going to recover. Part of that, I think, was a placebo effect. Part of it was a, a just about a compassion that it's, it's – uh, at least make their last few days happy, give them or months or whatever it is, give them hope. And yet um, today, I think we've gone much in the other direction, which is you should be honest, let them prepare. You know, we had a guest talking about hospice and and and, and uh, how important that is to let people face their death honestly and be as comfortable as possible and know about it and to do the things they might want to do. They knew they were they they weren't going to make it. So I, I think. Um, whether to lie or not, it's kind of complicated. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> that is that is definitely complicated. I, I find myself that sometimes I'm just conflicted. Um, what do I leave out here? Because I feel like I should just say it all. But then the other part of me says, no, I shouldn't. <laughs> there are, you know, you, you can't do that. You know, talking about surgeons, one of the, one of the things that I wonder about with, um, the lies and the certainty is how much of that actually might be motivated by some of the incentives involved in medical malpractice suits. Oh, yeah. So if a, if a surgeon conveys certainty to you about this is the right surgery for you, this is uh, like in, in tech, we talk about best practices in medicine. They talk about what the standard of care, this is the standard. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
So this is the thing, and this is what we need to do, and it's going to turn out. It, it, this this usually turns out okay, and we don't know if that means one percent of people die or forty nine percent of people die, but it usually turns out okay. But regardless, if they give that level of certainty, maybe it dissuades some people from suing later on after the fact because they feel like that was a very competent doctor doing things very well, and so things didn't turn out. But you know that's how it goes sometimes. And so some of that, I wonder if it's a facade to, to steer people away from lawsuits. Yeah, in fact, uh, the other thing that you – know, when, I, when I get an issue, I think we all do this to some extent. When something is at the front of your brain, all of a sudden everything you see tends to remind you of it. So, you know, I've been thinking about this issue of certainty that you raised. And so the number of things that come along in my Twitter feed or my daily life where I'm confronted with this question of how honest to be or whether it's – yeah, honest to myself as well. Uh, but the issue that you just raised is one that, that I've been reading about in the last couple of weeks, which is should a surgeon or a doctor ever say that they're sorry for a bad outcome? Yeah. Um, so um, the issue that was given and the thing I saw was a, a surgeon made a mistake. The, they slipped. They, their hand didn't go to where they wanted it to go. They nicked something and the patient died as a result. So now they confront the family one view says, uh, lie, don't tell them, just say it didn't turn out well. Of course, sometimes I think we have evidence, the system is designed to avoid that opportunity for the surgeon. I don't think surgeons can lie about those things the way they used to. So the, so they'll, in this case, the surgeon said, I'm sorry. Now, the, big, the article, I don't know if I can find it, but the article was about debating, should the surgeon have said that? And one of the issues was exactly what you just said, which was by saying you're sorry, you deter a uh, a lawsuit. Now, stepping outside of that for a moment, I believe that the right response in that setting is to tell the truth that you made a mistake, that that you're you deeply regret it, and to be vulnerable. <laughs> Going back to our earlier point, mm-hmm. I think as a human being, um, that's the right thing to do, and I don't care whether it raises or lowers the the choice, you know, the odds of a lawsuit. And I think a lot of medicine is is messed up today because of those kinds of, of strategic issues. You know, I think a person confronting a death in that situation wants to hear the truth. Uh, if they don't, I'm not even sure it matters. The um, same thing happens in the military. You know, somebody dies from friendly fire from their own side, and and I think you know we want to believe that. People die heroically. We want to be told that you know they saved somebody's life, that they died, but from the hand of their own soldier, colleague, friend, is unbearably tragic. And uh, but I think yeah, in those situations, I think there's a level of honesty that that's required. But that's just I don't know. That's my thought. Yeah, the uh, the coping with things honestly uh, as we're dealing with. Those military issues. So just brief digression. One of the other podcasts I listened to quite a bit is the Jocko podcast that started a couple of years ago. And this is an ex-Navy SEAL, leadership positions. He's talked about a lot about those blue-on-blue blue, blue on blue situations, how, how they come about and how common they really are. And that's sort of, sort of amazing to think about. Um, that's, that's a real issue, and that's something that – you know, in a military context, they, they can engage in an awful lot of training to try to prevent scenarios like that. Um, hmm. how, how, you, how you deal with it during and after, I mean, obviously preparation is a, is a big deal there, but how you deal with it afterwards when something goes wrong. Your example about uh, surgery, 
that's a big issue. I'm trying to think about, you know, examples, examples, just myself, you know, there've been times I've made some big decisions that involved a lot of money and things. Oops. We didn't notice that for three weeks. Well, $30,000 got spent and mostly wasted. That's come up in life. Yeah. And again, in most, most situations where things like that happen in a business world, dealing with e-commerce systems and all these, the data's there. Everybody can see what went wrong after it's noticed. You can't, you can't really sweep it under the carpet. (laughs) Um, these these are not the days where you know the accounting system is just uh, on paper and you can fill out a, a new a new sheet and throw yeah. the old one away and just make it disappear. So a lot of that data is preserved forever. It's still going to be there twenty years from now when somebody goes in and looks at one of these one of these systems and says what went on back then. Yeah, I'm going to come back to Churchill for a second because one of the themes of Andrew Roberts was how many mistakes he made, how many failures he had, and um, you know I think. Andrew Roberts's viewpoint is he learned from them. I don't know if he learned from it at all, actually. He gave an example where, you know, he had – that he never overruled his chiefs of staff in World War II. I don't know if that was a good decision or not. Something he did learn from his mistakes in World War I, perhaps. But, um, you know, it's the same point that it's not obvious you should – you should learn from your mistakes, but you shouldn't take them to heart. And then how do you do that is not so straightforward, right? Um Shouldn't lots of mistakes lead to lots of humility <laughs> in a leader, right? And and um, I, I and it should change your behavior. I, I think one of the one of the points I think that will uh, survive this conversation is that being aware of your failings does not mean you should um, give up. Uh, it, it may mean you shouldn't be a leader. By the way, maybe you're not good at it. There are situations. Uh, where where a lesson learned is that you should stop doing something, but but I think um, I'm going to try to uh, square this circle in a minute. But I do think there is a way to deal with the reality that we're not perfect. We make mistakes. We lose money. We have surgeries that don't go well. Uh, some of them are our fault. They're not just random. There's a huge random component on top of it. Uh, but on top of that, there's our own imperfection. And I don't think um, – I think you should confront your imperfection in life, and I don't think that should paralyze you. So I think one of the answers I'm going to give you is that uh, I don't think humility means uh, that you give up. It doesn't mean you have nothing to contribute. It doesn't mean you're, you're, you're flawed and therefore you, you should stay quiet. Um, you should grow. You should understand what you needed to learn from a situation, and ideally you're going to get better at it. I think you should be foolish about how much better at it you are, that it'll never happen again, that whatever. But I think you can grow and get better, and, and it, it does not mean you should just give up. So the failures that we have in life really shape the choices and opportunities we have next, I think. And there's, again, you look at somebody's career like Churchill's, there's, there's probably multiple points of failure that pushed him off in this direction, and then that set up for something that came later and that set up for something that came later, another failure in every one of those cases though, it's easy to look back and and see something where maybe it looks like there was some path to greatness, but in reality it was stumbling along through one closed door after another. Um, And, and again, it's just like, there's almost like just uh, some selective filters and you made it through some and you didn't make it through others. It's not necessarily a a cosmic path you're following has been dictated from on high. When you talk about the issue of fault, whose fault it was, and whether you own that, whether you give up, I, I, 
increasingly think that it's always my fault when I'm in a leadership situation. Um, and it's a, it's a powerful concept, I think, to, to grapple with whatever goes wrong. Um, however things turned out, uh, I had some influence over how it turned out. And I can't control other people. And that's so true in human organizations. Like I can help some people, I can train, I can mentor, I can structure some things. But ultimately, you know, I, they're not puppets. I, I don't control them, really. I just control me. That, that old stoic idea of, you know, you only control your own thoughts and your own deeds. So if you, if you can find a way to just own all the problems that pop up in life, that's actually the path to figuring out what to do about them that you can do, to be able to take the actions that you can take. Dick Mahoney is the former CEO of Monsanto. And he told me the following story, which is an interesting illustration of what you're talking about, or at least a partial illustration. When he was CEO, Monsanto had plants, factories all around the world. If anybody died on the factory floor in a Monsanto facility anywhere in the world, Dick Mahoney required the manager of that plant to be in his office within 24 hours in person. And when that person walked in the door, Dick Mahoney confronted him and said, why did you kill that person? Which is a horrible thing to say to someone who I'm sure was deeply upset and probably had many regrets, thought about a lot of things. But when confronted with that question, he said that they'd often answer, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? And he would say, well, there was something you could have done. Now, Dick wasn't dispensing cosmic justice. He was trying to create a safer organization. And unlike economists who would say that the optimal number of deaths isn't zero because there are trade-offs to have a perfectly safe facility. In fact, if you don't want anyone to die, close the facility would be the economist answer. I've given answers like that before. But Dick's answer, Dick's point, which is correct, of course, in the real world, is that your culture, you want your culture to bend towards safety rather than toward recklessness and that it's not stable necessarily. And you want this to be front and center going forward, that there's some system of breaks that should have been taken or, you know, on the job time, downtime or something that in the process that could have been made uh, more effective. Of course, what the guy could have responded, I never thought about this until just now, David, but what he could have said was, what about you? You killed him. You let me run this facility and you weren't on top of it. So there is a, uh, there is a chain of command that's inevitably imperfect. And, um, but I think the right question he was asking was, this is a time for a little bit of soul searching what might you do going forward to make this less likely? And I think that's, that's a good thing to think about. But um, mistakes are inevitable. When you raised that story, I was thinking about that. Why, you know, is he looking in the mirror and asking that same question of himself? But the thing is, I think he probably was. Well, that's why he has the guy come in, because that's his way of, of trying to reduce it in the future, right? So, yeah, you're, you're fair enough. Yeah, I think the two of them need to have that connection and heart-to-heart and sort of co-accept that. And, and find a path to a, a better future. The, that, that go, the, think, think to a military example. You know, the captain loses the ship. The captain loses their commission, right? That's the, the, the standard from, from way back in the day. And that does create one of those skin-in-the-game mechanisms, yeah, that's right? that's classic example, right? Yep. You build a house that collapses, and uh, the builder sh- should get, and he kills someone, the builder, and, they, and I think it's in the Hammurabi Code, the builder gets killed, uh, executed for that failure. 
it's gonna make, it means two things. Not many builders, and they tend to build really safe houses. <laughs> I mean, in, in those scenarios, you know, the, with, the, with the ship captains, you're, that means you're going to lose some good captains through something that was just a mistake. Yeah. But that also means that there's a very high standard, and people are going to try a whole lot harder than if you didn't have that, that, uh, that uh, level of punishment, really. And that goes, again, that goes back to the things about the sort of selective pressures on organizations. Um, even if you look at the, the example of the manager where somebody dies, if some people lose their jobs over that, um, maybe that makes the organization better, even when it truly was some freak of nature, just because that maintains that standard, that really high standard on the value of human life. And it's a great point. Uh, the way I like to think about it is sometimes justice is too expensive. So justice means making sure that you made the right decision about how to cope with this accident, you know, whether the person deserved to be fired, whether the captain should have done something different. The amount of effort it would take to, dis- to dispense that level of justice is infinite. It's a level of information that almost never will be uh, acquired. And so a rule of thumb, your ship goes down, you lose your commission, you're out, is unfair. It's unjust because there are going to be times when it wasn't the person's fault. But the alternative which seems attainable of justice. Oh, well, each case will look and see if it was their fault or not. There's such a gray area there, and there's such an effort that would be put in, into ascertaining that that it's, it might be better to be unjust. I used to, I probably mentioned this before, but I used to have a rule on my homeworks that uh, they would never be regraded when I was teaching in the classroom. I'd say, you know, the homework's 15% of the, the grade, if you don't do the homework, you probably won't do well in the exam. So the only reason I make it 15% is to incentivize you a little bit to spend time on it. If, if you don't, you could get an A anyway. You do just fine. It's possible. It's unlikely in my experience, but it's possible. So I'm giving you a little bit of paternalism here, making it 15%. So I did that. And then people would come in and say, this was misgraded. You gave me a three out of five. I think it's a four. And I'd, say, I'd look at it and I'd say, you're right. I was a little harsh with that three. It should have been a four. And then I'd sit there and they'd look at me and they'd say, you going to change it? I said, oh, no, I'm not going to change it. What do you mean? I'm not going to change it. Oh, but you said it's a four. I'd say, well, here's the problem. If I say I'm, I'm going to change grades that are unfair, people only come in when they're too low. The people who got overgraded when I gave them a four and they deserved a two, they're never going to come in. And then, you know, if I really want to be fair, I have to look at the other questions I graded. So... Given that it's 15% of the grade, I'm kind of assuming it's going to even out over the course of the semester. We're going to have five or six homeworks. So the cost of doing that, I, don't, I really don't want to incentivize you as the student to come begging and pleading because I hate begging and pleading. Just get smarter, okay? That's the goal. Now, if you miss – I treated exams differently. They were 40 – excuse me, I think the homework was 10%. I think the midterm was 40 and the final was 50. If I misgrade your final, I'd take a look at it, but my rule was – if you submit for a misgrade, I'm going to regrade the entire exam. I don't want to just selectively have people come in who think on this one question. And, and there's an injustice there. And I, by the way, I got increasingly uncomfortable with it as I got older. I, I realized how arbitrary a lot of grades were in my class, and in the grading process, was is it just it's there's a there's an inherent ambiguity there that is inherently unjust. Um, and it's you know the, the examples we're giving from human life that are tragic, not just a misgraded homework, but a, a life lost on the on factory floor, of course, very different, or a ship that goes down. But the principle is the same, and the same principle, I think, applies in sports right now, where the obsession with getting the call right in soccer 
in football, in basketball, and the use of replay, there's no end to it. It's it. To, if we really want to know, we're going to see that this year coming up in the National Football League. They've changed the definitions of interference, and I think they've opened a Pandora's box they're not prepared for. And we'll we'll see what happens. But my point is that, just to reinforce your point, a, a rule of thumb can sometimes be incredibly unjust and be the right rule anyway. I th- I think there are a lot of situations where that rule of thumb is unjust to the person who's sitting there in the hot seat. But the the broader effects on the organization are amazingly good, um, and so I, I, yeah, maybe that's a that's a tough one from an ethical perspective. How how hard do you go on this person, uh, knowing that that actually is the best thing for the organization? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd make a distinction between the Hammurabi Code, where you execute the builder who, when the house collapsed, that may not have been his fault. It was a you know, a really bad hurricane that year that that season. Uh, versus the commissioning, uh, decommissioning of a of a admiral or a sailor, or captain of a ship. Um, I want to I want to shift gears now and give what I think is a better answer. So we've been talking about a lot of interesting aspects of this trade off between honesty and humility and leadership situations, family situations, medical situations. I think there's a I think there's a deeper point to be made that you've brought out, and. I realized from your email that this question is a really big question. You know, this question of how do you move forward in life honestly, knowing that there's uncertainty and yet knowing you have to make decisions, right? So that's a different way to phrase this leadership question. You know, there's a part of your story with your employee where it wouldn't have been that harmful, to be somewhat overly confident in that setting if you had known that she needed that. You wouldn't have felt you'd betrayed your integrity. Um, this gets back to the white lie point, right? There's a way as a leader I think you can be honest without uh, being arrogant. So that's one – That's I think there's a deeper answer to that, and I'm going to try to, to push this toward. And and once – you know, since I, I, I grapple with these issues – because I talk about them so much or because I think they're so important. I, I don't know. Part of it's just fascination with uncertainty. But you know, I realized after your email and I realized how little I had to say, even though we've had a nice conversation for almost an hour, um, they didn't have a clean answer to your to your question. So I want to focus the question. I want to try to give a, a, a different kind of answer. So the focus of the question is, how do you get through life? I'm going to take it away from the leadership CEO challenge. How do you get through life knowing that you're flawed, you're, you're, the power of your reason is, is imperfect? In theory, you should be uncertain about almost everything, and yet you can't live that way. So where do you draw the line? How do you, just, how do you cope with the reality that uh, humility is uh, demanded but sometimes untenable? How do you square that circle? So I'm going to give an answer that that's that came out. It's interesting. It came out of a episode with uh, Charlene Nemeth, and when she when we had this interaction, when Charlene and I had this interaction, I, I remember it being very comforting to me. I I didn't realize at the time I hadn't thought about it enough. I just sort of went, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I'm a, it's okay what I think. It's fine. It was a form of confirmation bias, actually. But you're challenge uh, really 
reminded me of that interaction with Charlene Nemeth, and then I went back to it in preparation for this conversation today. And I think there's something there, and you I didn't warn you about this. You haven't gone, I don't know if you heard it the first time. I've listened to all of them, but I don't remember <laughs> this one off the top of yeah. my head. So, so that's good. And so I'm going to give you a, uh, I'm going to sort of summarize what she said and then maybe riff on it a little better. Maybe I'll let you respond, then I'll riff on it. But the, her, her, uh, her book is called In Defense of Troublemakers. And in a way, you can think about um, Churchill's a troublemaker, right? Here's this obnoxious, arrogant, self-centered, narcissist, overconfident about the dangers of the German military buildup. And he won't shut up. And he's just make he's just, they're sick of him. <laughs> and, you know, I mentioned this to Andrew Roberts, the, you know, England lost, I think he said 1.1 million people in World War One of a population that was something around 40 or 50 million. Horrific. And nobody wanted to go back to war again. And here's this, this lunatic, this one note guy can just won't stop. And so, yeah, troublemakers are really important. People who are obsessively overconfident. And it's part of what we've been saying for the last hours, how in different situations of leadership, uh, humility is a, is a weakness and maybe a mistake. And so I was talking to her about that. And I raised the question that is a version of your question, which was, which of course, I'd forgotten. <laughs> uh, I've heard all the episodes too, by the way, but it's remarkable how, Listeners often remember more than I do, and the transcripts are even more memorable, of course. So I raised the following question. I said, you know, somebody like Jordan Peterson, uh, somebody like Milton Friedman, somebody like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, these were people who were extremely confident um, about the, that they were right about certain things. And they exuded that confidence, and that confidence as a consumer of it is extremely seductive and exciting. So the downside of this seduction is that you listen to your political candidate and think they know everything, they're going to make everything perfect. That's obviously a horrible thing. But the troublemaker, not just the leader, but the troublemaker, the person who stands athwart history, stands athwart uh, intellectual trends, groupthink, and says, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. And that person to be heard has to be really confident usually or, or incredibly articulate or incredibly eloquent. And you combine those and you start to get somewhere. Um, so I said to, to Charlotte Nemeth, I said, you know, these people – and I, I don't want to put – they're not all the same. They're just obviously Jordan Peterson, Milton Friedman, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn have – there are a lot of differences, folks. I'm very aware of it. But, but I'm talking about how – when someone calmly asserts certainty, they force you to listen. That's a human, you know, that's part of what you're saying is the people in your organization want that. We want that. We, we crave it. We desire it. And so there's something fantastic about it. There's something um, important in that those people stand up and, and speak out. Um, and so I asked her about that. And, and I'm going to read what I'm going to read an excerpt from the transcript um, and she said something at the time that, again, I found very comforting, but I, I realize now that I need to think about it uh, some more. She said, um, um, I was talking about myself at that point. I said, you know, I wonder whether I'm too humble, whether by constantly saying I don't know and, and may, maybe I am 
paralyzed to some extent. I'm not going to take sides on a lot of policy issues that maybe I should speak out about because I'm going to say, well, you know, the evidence is complicated. Um, so Charlene said, uh, I wouldn't say so much that they're confident. Uh, it's not it's not so much that they're confident as they are, as they have conviction. And I said, well said, because I like that. I thought that's it. Is that I thought that seems like an important distinction. <laughs> is it? And she said, and so what she said, she said, and they're stating something that they they really have thought about and really believe. But that doesn't mean that they also don't at a very deep level know or, in fact, are sure that they don't have the full answer. That, that doesn't mean they haven't considered every possibility or every contrary opinion to what they've come to believe. So I think you can be both, says Charlene. And she said, I think your phrasing of the, quote, strong opinions weekly held – the weekly held part of that is a willingness to know in your heart and sometimes even acknowledge that you might be wrong, that you still have much to learn. But this is really what you believe, given that you've given a lot of thought and you're quite convinced that this seems to be accurate. I mean, given what you are capable of. And I think, end of, end of quote, and I paraphrase that in a place or two, um, but I, I, I want to continue with Sherilyn's answer and then we'll talk, David, sorry. Um, this is just really, I think, beautiful. And again, I... Just did, totally forgotten about this, so I'm grateful to you for reminding me of it and getting me to think about it. Um, so Charlene mentions Carl Weick, who's an organizational psychologist, and she says, everybody quotes this, but many people don't attribute to him, it to him, which is um, – and she says, I think she said that's unfortunate, but she says his phrase is, argue as though you are right, but listen as though you are wrong. And that, to some extent, says Charlene, captures doing both of these – both of those. I think it's getting close to what you're sort of suggesting. It's that you are arguing as though you were right because you have strong opinion, but you listen as though you were wrong. And that's because you know they're weakly held. There's much to learn. And um, I went on to uh, – do I want to read any of this? Um, I went on to talk about um, a quote from her book, group decisions often in error, never in doubt. <laughs> I said, I think that's a great line. And when we leave a meeting, have a made decision, we're all high. We did a great job. We did the right thing. We came to the right conclusion. Uh, being aware of the possibility that you're wrong is a great thing to be reminded of. And I said, I think that's one of the things your book does. So the point she's making is that life is uncertain. We're never sure that, that we're right. But if we grapple with something and we do the best we can, inevitably there comes a point where you have to come down and make a decision. You've got to act. You can't say – you can. I mean, you can be a, a hermit. You can sit in a cave and never do anything in the world besides uh, eat and sleep, I guess. You can't make much of a living. But in general, when, in the reality of the world, you have to make decisions under uncertainty. And so you do the best you can. The more you grapple with it, uh, often the more confident you are that you've looked at, you've done what I think you call best practices. You've made there's imperfect information. You can't decide exactly what the right thing is, and you don't know how it's going to turn out, but you do the best you can. And is it possible? So here's my question, and then you can say whatever you want. It's not, you don't have to answer this question. I'm throwing it out there. Is it possible to be confident that you've made the right decision knowing that that may be the wrong decision? And I think that's the, the way to square this circle is that you do the best you can knowing that there is never enough information to make a perfect decision or a just decision or a, the decision that you know how it's going to turn out because that isn't the way life was create, made to be. It isn't that way. Uh, but you're allowed to have confidence that the process is, is the best it could be and that you 
You may even be confident that it will probably turn out well, knowing that it might not. I think that's a really good way to, to, to summarize um, a lot of what I think I've learned over the years. Um, that, that I think early on, when I was a young manager, I didn't really understand the social roles and what I needed to be. And I appreciate that more now. But this really does come down to business and really everything in life is making decisions when you just don't know everything. You're making a set of bad decisions that hopefully are the least bad they can be. And you roll with it. Um, maybe that's a little pessimistic view of it. Maybe it's not really the least bad, but that, that's kind of that's one way to look at it. You're trying to, to maybe mitigate some risks here and there and look for areas that are probably going to have better outcomes than others. And then you have to roll with it and you have to see what's going to happen. I think that as I've gotten older, I've gotten far more confident that even if I made the wrong decision, it's still going to turn out. Okay. Life will find a way. We'll bumble through it. A door will close. Another will open. A relationship will end. Another one will show up. Um, every decision doesn't have to be perfect. This comes up all the time. Um, I, I think that, that something that helps is also to have a history of, of making decisions that are good enough and seeing them move the ball forward um, and seeing the results that you get out of that and knowing that it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, we don't have to make an absolute perfect decision. We have to make decisions that are mostly right most of the time. And that will, that will move the needle. That'll, that'll get us the results that we're trying to accomplish or, you know, achieve the goals we have personally in life. We're, we're moving towards that, that longer term vision we have of what we want to be. Um, so I, I think that just leads to a scenario where maybe I can't be certain about the decision being perfect, but I can be confident that I've done this before. I can be confident that this is the best we can do with the information available. And, and when we have to convey something to other people that we're working with, that that's something that we can convey confidence rather than certainty. We've encountered problems like this before. And this is how we solved them, and this is how it turned out. So when I think about that employee who was anxious about the future of the company and wanted you to reassure her, there are things I think you could have said that were honest but comforting that were – so So I think the, I think the Gene Kranz level of uh, – he's the Apollo 13 guy. That level of, of overconfidence that failure is not an option uh, – and that's the Churchill level of confidence, that's crucial in a life-threatening situation. You've got to have and exude that level of confidence. You can't show insecurity. You cannot show uncertainty. But that's not most of life. And that's really what I take from this last point you made, which I think so, was beautifully said. You know, things work out okay, a lot better than you thought. You do the best you can. You learn from your mistakes. You go forward with confidence that you've done best practices or you've looked at what you can look at. And you realize and recognize that you might make a mistake and that there's nothing wrong with that because it's not the end of the world. It's gonna, you're going to recover. Another door will open because of their decision that will turn out to help you deal with it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the other issue we haven't talked about, and we don't have time to go into in depth, but I think it's very relevant to what we've been talking about, is the desire for control and the desire to be confident. It's a form of self, of misleading yourself that you're in charge. Um, 
it's true your employee wanted to know you were in charge, but if you're not careful, you actually delude yourself into thinking you're in charge. Uh, and that that there's a lot of reasons that's a bad idea. There's probably some benefits to it. Um, it leads to you know maximum effort in a lot of situations. The, the drawback is is that you're not in charge. And you're going to be confronted with that over and over and over again. And for me, just a, a personal psychological level, a lot of my uh, growing up in the last uh, decade or so, is, I feel as a human being, is coming to, to try to cope with that, that uh, my need for control, my need to be um, um, in charge. And, and I would just say on this episode, I had no idea how this was going to turn out. Uh, I was telling my wife this morning, uh, you know, I don't know if we have more than 20 minutes to talk about, 30 minutes. I guess we could just issue it as a – if it only goes for half an hour, we'll just issue it as an extra. Um, but, you know, at one point I just sort of said, well, let's see how it goes. You know, that's okay. I don't have to I don't have to script the conversation. I didn't script it. Just that here's some mileposts I think we'll hit, but I think it'll do, do okay. So any other thoughts? Well, as we're talking about these issues, um, one of the things that popped into my head driving here today was thinking about that. That uh, that old uh, story about uh, I think it's Michelangelo, you know, chipping away at, at the David uh, statue. Like, how do you how do you how do you how do you find David in the middle of that you know marble block? And it's like I chip away everything that's not David. And I think that with many of these issues, um, we haven't we haven't found David yet. We're sort of just chipping away at the block. But the closer we get, the more we know that's not David. Um, and. For me, I, I think that's also just just something that's that's comforting and that, that is interesting to think about. That it's not always about being certain; it's not about being right. It's sometimes just understanding more ways that we used to be wrong, and we're not that wrong in that way anymore. Don't have all the answers, but but we're moving in the right direction. And I, I, I'm tempted at this point to try to summarize. That's a nice summary. But there's so much more we came up with today, and I don't um, – I'm sure I'll come back to these issues, and I'm also sure that I'm not ready to summarize how I feel about it yet. You, you, you opened a challenge to me that that it, I didn't realize I thought about before in that Charlotte Nemeth episode and whatever else was on my mind in those in those times, and I think part of it's living – I've talked about this on the program. Part of it's living in a time when there's so much certainty on the part of people yelling and the outrage is so uh, self-righteous that my natural impulse is to be less self-righteous. Um, and that that comes with a cost, though, that there could be some dangerous self-righteous people out there, and I better be self-righteous on the other side. And this academic former professor sitting around saying, I don't know, I don't know, is possibly uh, the wrong response at this moment in history. So – these are issues that, that I don't have a, an answer to, and, and I love your idea that that there are things that are not David. There are things we've, we know are not the way to go, um, lying to oneself constantly, overconfidence all the time, uh, uh, overselling a data and, and research that's not reliable, and so on and so on. So it's not like we haven't made progress, but I, I know that I need to continue to think about these issues, and I thank you, David, for bringing them to the to the forefront of my mind. Well, thanks a lot for having me on the Econ Talk today. I uh, didn't expect this when I sent you that email. When I got your reply, I was just floored. <laughs> 
So, hey, one more thing crossed off the bucket list, I guess. <laughs> My guest today has been David Deppner. David, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.